Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by James A. Cox and Mark W. Rasmussen, the editors of Blockchain for Business Lawyers. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I'm sure our listeners have heard the term blockchain, but they may really find the title of this book a little bit intimidating or the subject may seem too complex. Let's just ground everyone in a pretty basic thing. What is blockchain? James, could you please give us a 101? Sure. So blockchain is actually the technology that was used to support the Bitcoin network when it was first rolled out in 2008. It's, blockchain is a technology. The idea behind it is to allow people to keep track of items in a, in, that otherwise would be used in a centralized ledger, but to do it in a decentralized way. That's what the creator of Bitcoin wanted. He wanted a currency that could be used where there was no central bank, there was no central authority that had to keep track of what uh, amount of currency each person had. Instead, it was a distributed system. And what people have found out is that the, the blockchain system that, that was invented for use with Bitcoin is actually useful for other kinds of problems, too. Other kinds of problems where a distributed ledger that is unchangeable, that is immutable, that doesn't need a centralized authority to, to govern over it, uh, those kinds of problems are uh, applicable to blockchain technology. And by the way, that's also blockchain technology is also called distributed ledger technology or DLT. Okay, and I think that I know in my industry in journalism, we learn a new word or a new concept, and we get real excited and we start trying to apply it to everything. I remember when I was first you know entering journalism uh, in the early two thousands, people had just learned about blogs, and everyone's like, "Let's have a blog," and I really see something kind of similar happening in discussions online with, what if we use blockchain? But you mentioned in your intro, Jim, you say it's it's not a panacea. So Jim or Mark, can one of you talk about where you see the best applications for blockchain and some areas where, you know what, this does not seem to be a good fit? Well, I, I'll, I don't mind starting out. So I said before that the, the, the whole idea behind blockchain technology is to have a distributed system without a centralized authority. So if the system that you're thinking about using blockchain for does have a centralized authority and needs a centralized authority, then it may not be the best application for blockchain technology. Let's think of an example. For example, um, you know, people have proposed using blockchain technology to handle automobile titles, right? So the state keeps track of who buys an automobile and records their name on in, in the ledger. And when somebody sells an automobile to another person, that has to be uh, recorded in the ledger again. That may or may not be a good function for blockchain technology, depending on uh, whether you want to eliminate the role of the state as the centralized authority. So that's really the key to me is, is do you want a distributed network with no centralized authority? Or do you want a network where there's one centralized actor that governs everything? And Mark, have you run into any other applications that people were excited about but just didn't seem like a good idea? Uh, well, 
maybe I could give you a couple of examples that seem to be good ideas, and then then I can come back to respond to that one. But where we see the most advancement um, in the en- in in the enterprise space, that is, corporations that are trying to adopt this technology, is really in, in supply chain management and trade finance. Um, there's some interesting applications that are are uh, have grown from just the development stage to the actual use stage that are showing real promise. Um, we've also seen some banks that are attempting to improve efficiencies in um, loan origination and asset securitization, uh, and there seem to be some efficiencies that can be gained there. Um, where blockchain technology doesn't really make sense is if, as Jim said, you already have a central authority that you trust and that you can rely on. We live in a world that is largely been governed by central authorities, and we're all pretty comfortable with that model, you know, whether it's a government or whether it's a bank or whether it's a retailer of some sort, we trust a lot of parties and companies with some of our, you know, important information. Um, but, you know, the, the the promise of blockchain technology is that we can, as Jim said, do away with that. But if you have something that works and, and you know, you're in an industry where a central authority is desirable, uh, then there's probably no need to change it uh, just to adopt the latest technology that's been out there. Okay. And just to rewind a little bit, I'd love to tell our listeners more about the format of this book, Blockchain for Business Lawyers. You know, it's a series of essays. Could you talk a little bit about how you came to feel, you know what, there needs to be a book out there for lawyers and also the process of developing it? I noticed that everyone who submitted an essay for it works for Jones Day, so it seems like your firm has a very powerful block of attorneys really considering these issues. How would you come to write and compile these essays? Well, the ABA, I think, was interested in getting ahead on this technology and, and the legal issues that are presented by it and you know, came to us and asked Jim and me if we would work on this book. Um, and we told them, sure, we'd be happy to. And it just so happens that you know, Jones Day, being a multinational firm with um, diverse practice areas, would be perfectly situated to to write the entire book. The interesting thing about blockchain technology is that it cuts across so many different legal disciplines and so many different jurisdictions that sort of the, it was sort of the sweet spot for Jones Day um, because we have you know 40 plus offices around the globe and deep expertise in securities law and tax um, contract principles antitrust etc. We felt that we had the right lawyers that could write each of these chapters and so Jim and I uh, sat down and sort of brainstormed what some of the key issues were that we had already seen and some of the issues that we thought were on the horizon. Uh, and that led to this seven-chapter book that we have. Now, there are other legal issues out there, particularly intellectual property, um, patents, and trademark issues that we haven't covered that we could cover in future books. But I think the for a first edition, these, these seven chapters really do a good job of covering a lot of the major issues that companies are going to face when they explore this technology. Could you give me an example of a real-world case in which you had to 
comprehend and, and apply knowledge of, of blockchain to resolve it. I know that in the book, you mentioned a lawsuit involving Floyd Mayweather and DJ Khaled. Could you tell us a little bit about that case? Oh, sure. Yeah, there was a company called Centratech that was raising capital uh, through what's called an initial coin offering. That's where uh, they, they were selling a, a digital token to the public to to raise money. Um, and they enlisted the help of Floyd Mayweather and DJ Khaled as part of that ICO. Uh, and there's been several actions. There's a regulatory action, private litigation, and uh, a criminal proceeding uh, related to that Centratech ICO. You know, the SEC in, investigated not only the company Centratech that was doing the ICO, but also uh, Mayweather and Khalid uh, for their promotion of the ICO through their Twitter accounts. And that SEC investigation ended up with uh, a settlement whereby Mayweather and Khalid had to pay a certain amount in disgorgement and fines. The civil lawsuit is still ongoing, and the defendants in that case are trying to get it dismissed. Uh, but it's it's already generated some interesting legal opinions and uh, on some issues that companies will have to face going forward. I think one of the most daunting things that occurred to me as I was going through the book is, you know, Jim, you were talking about how our world is really dominated by centralized authorities. And even with that, Questions of jurisdiction can be complex. But when you have this blockchain technology in which there is no centralized authority, does it make the question of bringing a case, serving notice, figuring out who has jurisdiction to decide any issue related to this, does it make it just even more complex? How do you handle that? Well, I think I think we're just in the beginning stages of figuring out how we're going to handle that. I think you know the the development of the internet was was sort of a, a new revelation in in for courts and dealing with jurisdictional issues. You know where you've got if if you're selling a product and it's available to people by going to a website and purchasing it, then you're you as a company are potentially exposing yourself to jurisdiction and legal actions anywhere the anywhere the internet reaches and anywhere you're willing to sell the product or or anywhere you offer the service if it's a service over the internet um so i think we you know we understood that 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 expanded jurisdiction what what happens with blockchain systems is i think that there there are challenges that we don't even understand how to approach yet so here's an example a, a number of cryptocurrency systems like the Ethereum blockchain support smart code and smart contracts. So the idea behind that is that a transaction, you know, sending one Ether, one coin to somebody over the blockchain network can also trigger just an arbitrary uh, amount of the execution of any kind of code. So you could, you could have an entire computer program that would run when Mark sends me one uh, coin on a cryptocurrency network, it could, it could trigger enormous. It, it could trigger an enormous amount of computing functionality that would perform all kinds of operations. Where would you have a lawsuit if there were disputes about that? About what happened in that transaction, or what happened with the processing of the of the computer code uh, after the transaction was sent? Well, on the Ethereum blockchain, the processing happens in every single node all across the world. So if there are thousands of nodes, which there are in Ethereum, they're located all over the world. 
There, lots of them are in the U.S., but lots of them are in Russia and China. There may be even some in countries that that don't have regular business exchanges with most of the Western countries. What do we do about that? Where would an action be appropriate to bring to resolve a dispute like that? I don't think we've really even started trying to approach what the answer is to those kinds of problems, but that's just one example of the difficulties that are posed. And Jim, for our listeners, could you please just explain what a node is? Sure. So uh, on a blockchain network, and that includes the Bitcoin network or the Ethereum uh, network, um, it's made up of people who are operating the base level of software and are connected together, usually over the internet, into a network. And so each person who's, who's a part of that a network is considered to be a node in that network. That's all that means. Most of these large cryptocurrencies that are publicly known, like Bitcoin and, and Ethereum, have thousands of nodes. Thousands of people are connected and make up this network all over the world. So, Jim, you brought up smart code and smart contracts. I found the section on smart contracts really fascinating. Could you talk a little bit about what a smart contract is and how it functions? Right. This is an area I think that, you know, certainly over the longer term, it it offers at least the potential to make the most, uh, to have the most impact on law practice and and what lawyers do. And the idea behind a smart contract is that you could actually implement an arrangement, a legal arrangement that otherwise would call for contracts written in English, signed by, you know, traditional contracts, signed by each party. You could actually implement a, a pretty wide range of, of arrangements using code tied to transactions on a blockchain. And if you do that, it would create a lot of really interesting problems that I think you know lawyers are going to be called on to help solve. So one example is how do you deal with disputes? You know, the smart contract code says that you know, a certain amount of money is going to be transferred, but there's a dispute about whether that's proper or not. How do you intervene and stop that? Is it possible to do that? If uh, you know, where is the where are you going to resolve any disputes? How are you going to get the communicate the results of whatever resolution that you have, whether that's by a court or an arbitrator, into the blockchain? You know, just a more basic question is: if you do that, are you going to also have an English language contract? Uh, in addition to the the contract in the smart code, which one is going to govern if there's a difference between those two? Uh, Are lawyers going to have to get coding skills to be able to understand smart code and smart contracts if we're being hired to evaluate this? So these are all really interesting questions. There's no, I I don't think there's a clear answer necessarily to any of those questions, but it seems uh, almost inevitable to me that we are going to see uh, people develop smart contract code that uh, lawyers are going to be called on to try to deal with and interpret. And I think that the example used in the book was sort of an if-then, where you sign a contract that says, if the price of gold hits this number, then this many units will be transferred to this account. Is that, in its most basic form, what a smart contract would look like, or could it be staggeringly complex? No, that would be a simple one. So the idea would be that if two people want to create an option contract, right, it's a contract where A agrees to sell 
gold at a certain price to be if the price of gold is at or above a certain level. Well, you could write that in computer programming code, and you could execute that code automatically on a blockchain. And then when and then if the price of gold ever gets to the point that triggers the option, then it would automatically execute both the transfer of gold and and the payment for the gold. So all those things would be automated on the blockchain. It's a pretty simple option contract, and it would be fairly simple to write in, in English, but it could also be implemented in smart code. And Mark, have you run into anything similar to this where you ran into an issue about you know these nodes or jurisdiction? Yeah, something similar to what Jim was describing has been addressed in, in one case out in California. It involves a company called Tezos that was doing an ICO, um, and some of the individuals involved in that were, were sued by a private plaintiff. One of the al- arguments that uh, at least one of the defendants made was that there was not a domestic securities transaction. Um, there wasn't a security sale that had been made within the United States. And the court analyzed that carefully, and part of the judge's decision involves where are blockchain transactions executed and recorded. And the opinion explained that, you know, there was a domestic securities transaction in part because there were Ethereum nodes, a large percentage of Ethereum nodes operating within the United States that were recording these transactions. And therefore, that was part of the rationale for finding that a domestic securities transaction had occurred and had been alleged. Now, Mark, does that present difficulties if you're advising a client, for example? The client, I would assume, does not have any knowledge or say in where these nodes are, uh, and they could accidentally find themselves, you know, oh, well, this node was in Kazakhstan, and there's an issue because of this, and now all of a sudden they're dealing with the Kazakh government. Are there difficulties like that when you're thinking about how to advise your clients? Sure. It it certainly presents risks that you have to discuss with your clients, and, you know, some assume that because they're operating within one jurisdiction – they may not be susceptible to legal action in other jurisdictions. Um, but it's generally known in the community, and you can find the information online where these nodes are being run out of. Um, but it's an issue you have to flag for clients and get them thinking about that as part of their risk analysis. So, Jim, I'm curious, both for you and Mark, how did you become involved in this area of law, and what would be your advice for other attorneys who are interested in either just learning more about blockchain or in making this sort of a subspecialty of their legal practice? Well, I'm probably an unusual case. Um, In an earlier stage of my life, I was a software developer. And so I'm not sure exactly when I learned about Bitcoin, but it was a number of years ago. And I've just, it's just sort of been a hobby of mine to keep up with it. What happened is, I guess, two or three years ago, our law firm made a decision to try to identify some emerging technologies that were going to be important to clients of, of our firm in the future. And blockchain technology ended up being one of the ones identified, so it was only natural that I got involved in that effort. But uh, for attorneys that, that you know want to go forward, I think that it would be helpful to have a technical background. A number of the lawyers that I know who have sort of started out in this in this area have that kind of a background, but 
but really it's just being open to um, uh, it, it's not required that you have one. It's just being open to you know, understanding how a new technology like this is going to and has already made some changes in what clients do and the kind of legal work they're interested in, in looking for from us. And Mark, did you follow a similar path to Jim's or was yours a different journey? Well, unlike Jim, I, I don't have a technical background. I wasn't a computer science major. Um, I studied literature in college, so it was pretty far outside of, of this realm. But about three years ago, uh, the head of our Dallas office here suggested that we start looking at these emerging technologies that Jim mentioned to see how we could get ahead of them and anticipate issues that our clients might have. And Bitcoin and blockchain stood out to me, and I started researching, and Jim and I um, studied together and we're, we're identifying legal issues. And I have a securities litigation background. Um, and so there was a natural overlap there because a lot of what these companies are doing were causing them to uh, run into questions about whether they were offering securities. And the SEC and other state and state securities regulators have said that a lot of these products are securities. So it was a nice dovetail with what I had been doing in the securities arena, uh, for sure. But it's just an interesting technology to me, and I see so many different great applications and, and legal issues that can emerge from that that it's something that I've stuck with. Speaking of emerging legal issues, we're having our conversation on February 6th, and one of the things that's in the news is this case of Quadriga, which seems to have really raised a number of alarming questions. Jim, could you talk a little bit about this case and where you see the potential dangers going forward for this application of technology? Sure. So what the media has reported uh, is that Quadriga, which is a cryptocurrency exchange based in Canada, uh, and it's one of the larger ones that, that's based in Canada, uh, but the founder of that uh, of that exchange died while on a trip to India. And apparently, at least according to the media reports, he was the only one with the keys to unlock what they called the cold storage wallet. And a lot of exchanges operate like that. A lot of cryptocurrency businesses operate like that. They'll have a hot wallet that a lot of people have access to in the business. And they use that for daily ongoing transactions. But then they have their, but their currency reserves are kept in a cold wallet that is only rarely opened up and used, and only a, a tiny number of people would have access to that and the keys. Well, in this case, that tiny number was one, and he died, and he left apparently no instructions for anybody to get access to what I think is about $160 million in funds. Now, I think you want to take all this with a, a grain of salt because. And I'm not trying to say that this is the case with Quadriga because we don't know yet, but there have been a number of other exchanges and other businesses in the cryptocurrency world that have conducted what people have, have uh, termed exit scams. So basically, these are businesses that find themselves in the middle of business. They find they have a lot of reserves in cryptocurrency. They realize or they think that they can get away with more money by clo by shutting down and leaving people high and dry and stealing all the money uh, than they can by continuing in business. So I'm not saying that, that this is an exit scam. There's no basis to say that right now. But I am saying that um, you know there's more facts that need to come out. 
you know, what I think it says is that in a new industry like cryptocurrency, people need to you know follow the old adage of caveat emptor. And if you're dealing with an exchange, you better make sure that it has the transparency and the the size and the reach and the and the funding that that you need to depend on a, a company that uh, had 160 million or more in other people's money. And maybe the second edition of this book could include an estates uh, section in it. Is that something that you have worked on, either of you, Jim or Mark? Um, only tangentially. Uh, we explored some of the issues, but not on a live matter. It certainly is an area of, of interest that a lot more people should be paying attention to, because more and more people are going to have those types of assets, and they'll have to deal with them in their in their wills and when you're in probate court. And it, it's not just a an issue of estate planning, although that's obviously important, but also family law, divorce, you know, division of assets. The existence of cryptocurrency and its presence as an asset in all, all kinds of contexts could add a lot of complexity to, you know, to otherwise ordinary legal matters. Do either of you see a similarity between the emergence of a field like cannabis law, where you're dealing with a product that may be considered legal in some areas, not in others, may exist in kind of a gray area, and the practice of cryptocurrencies and the use of this blockchain technology, because you know this is not a this is not a recognized legal tender as far as I know in the United States. So when you're deciding to build a practice around this, what are the concerns that you have or consider going into it? Well, on the point about cannabis, it, that that is an area where I see a lot of overlap, and and some people have you know called me for guidance. We've never taken them on as a client, but we've certainly discussed some of the issues uh, surrounding the difficulty of businesses in the cannabis industry having banking relationships. They're not able to get bank accounts set up, and so it can make payment acceptance and payment processing very difficult for them. And so some of those businesses in that industry are exploring the use of uh, cryptocurrencies uh, as a means of accepting payment and I think that that really is a, a growth area, particularly in Colorado, where the laws regarding the cannabis uh, are open and a little bit lax, and um, and they're also trying to promote blockchain technology. So that seems like a perfect jurisdiction for those two fields to merge. That's really the the similarity that I see between you know legal practice relating to those two fields. It's that there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, it's a little different, um, you know. In cannabis, the uncertainty comes from taking something that's been pretty uniformly illegal, and then you know it, it's becoming more legal in a patchwork way. But there are still conflicting laws uh, governing what can happen, and people are, are unwilling to take risks sometimes in, in legal risk in those areas. In blockchain, um, it seems like it's a little different area. It, it's it's potentially got a much more broad application to business. And I think one of the good things that's happened, in the U.S. anyway, is that with respect to at least blockchain technology, not necessarily the cryptocurrencies, most states and the federal government have taken a a sort of slow approach to imposing regulation. There have been a few exceptions to that. But we have not done what's happened in some other countries like China, where they have seen some abuses and completely shut down the market. You know, they've banned 
uh, initial coin offerings, for example. They've banned cryptocurrency exchanges. I think regulators in the U.S. are a little more tech-friendly and tech-savvy and understand that blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies offer a lot of potential, and so they're reluctant to want to make moves that are going to uh, shut the market down until they really do identify abuses and, and areas where the government can make a difference for good. Well, Jim and Mark, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. If our listeners are interested in finding out more or maybe attending an event through the section of science and technology law, where would you suggest they go to reach out to you or to the section? You can find out a lot of information on our website, the jonesday.com website. We have a blockchain and digital currencies page where we post news and events and some of our publications. Our firm is regularly publishing articles on the, the crossover of legal issues in this technology. So those are available there. And um, SciTech has its own information sources online, which you can go to. And I think the book is probably a, a really good resource for many people who want kind of an, a broad overview of the different issues that they or their clients might confront. And for our listeners who are interested in picking up Blockchain for Business Lawyers. It's available at the ABA web store at AmericanBar.org slash products. That's AmericanBar.org slash products. And ABA Publishing has established a discount for our listeners. Listeners can take an extra 30% off at checkout with the code BLOCK19. That's BLOCK19, B-L-O-C-K-1-9. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. It would be a great help to us if you would subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite podcast listening service.